Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Keep your Bibles open as he teaches. We're going to be all over Luke 6, but I'm going to read verses 46 to 49 as our main text this morning. Hmm. Hear the words of Jesus as Luke recorded them. Why do you call me Lord, Lord? And not do what I tell you. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on a rock. And when the flood rose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks, man. Good morning. I'm really glad to be able to open the word with you this morning. Um, I'm going to start by giving you um, a way to think about what we're going to talk about. Um, I was thinking about... um, finding our way into this text and how can we conceive of what we're going to discover in Luke chapter 6. And I realized that there is a metaphor that might help us, and that is I was thinking about the the common challenge that every newlywed couple faces. And even if you're not married, you're probably aware of this. Um, The couple gets married and they go away on their honeymoon. On the first morning that they wake up having been married, they, they know they're married, but now they have these questions in mind. What is life as a married couple supposed to look like, right? The nitty-gritty details of daily life now come rushing into the picture, right? They wake up and go, we're married, yay! And then, and then all kinds of questions start to arise, like, which way is the toilet paper supposed to unroll from the top <laughs> or from... You know, and, and, and which toothpaste are we really going to use? And are we going to have, uh, who's going to plan the, who's going to put the cat out? Uh, you know, and who, they start to wrestle with the very nitty gritty of daily married life. They know they're married, but then they start to wrestle with, so what's this going to look like? How are we going to play this out? Wondering about the details. They've often been given advice, but they're still trying to wrestle through. So daily, what will this look like? And, and, I have advice to married couples when, they, when they're first married. Don't focus on the nitty-gritty details. I will encourage them not focus on the... Grasp and live in the new reality. Even if you're not married, you understand this. That is, get the main thing, the main thing. And, and you'll work through the nitty-gritty details. But if you put all your attention on the nitty-gritty details, it's going to trip you up. So you need to keep in mind what the big picture is. The clearer you think, the clearer you think about the big idea, the easier it'll be to work through the details. It, it's kind of like this when you think about worship service. I, I cut my teeth in vocational ministry as a worship leader. And, and as I think about that, I, I can't make anybody worship. We can create an environment where you can worship. But as a worship leader, I, I was 
resistant to tell people what they must do. Stand and sing. Because then if they just stood and sing, then they do that, but that's not really the most important thing. Or tell them to clap or to kneel or whatever. It's not that you might not do those things, but you could do those things and overlook the main thing. The main thing is worship God, right? Get your heart oriented towards him, be really amazed and captured by him, and then whatever the appropriate expression is, do that. You're right. The, the nitty-gritty, the details work out if you get the main thing, the main thing. And I want, you, I want to invite you to think that way as we continue to move through Luke chapter 6. We're continuing in that series. But you might go, well, what, what, what do you mean, Brian? We're continuing in this series. You've not been here. Well, the truth is, Bradley and I meet every week, and we live in texts together. Uh, that's one of the delights of my week, is to be able to spend time with Bradley. And so I've been walking with you through Luke chapter 6, as Bradley and I meet. And then I listen to the messages online, and so although I'm not here every Sunday, I've been traveling in Luke with you all. And we're continuing in our series in Luke chapter 6. And we need to make sure that we see the big thing that Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 6, and not merely get focused on the specific details, because then sometimes those specific details are going to trip us up. So I want to help you. I want, I want to think well about Luke chapter 6, the big ideas, and I want to help you with that. Um, so you need to open your book to Luke chapter 6. It's really important, as good a teacher as Bradley is, his words are not life-changing. These words are. His words are not the words of life. These words are. So we're going to put our noses in the book... Uh, or second best, an electronic device of some kind. But I want you to be attentive to the very words that Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote, call our attention to. We're going to travel, do a little bit of review, not because there's anything wrong with what Bradley said, but I want to make sure that you feel the momentum of what Jesus is teaching, what he is saying. He delivered this chapter in about 10 minutes. And it's taken us months to get through it. And that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing to break it down and walk it through that way. But I don't want us to not grasp the momentum of what's being said. So we're going to do a little bit of review and then come and focus on those last few verses that Bradley read. And to do that well, we need to pray. I'm not praying because it's the right thing to do. I'm praying because I'm desperately in need of help. So let's pray, and then we'll read, and then we'll think together. It is... It's sad to me, Father, that I, I can have a really great time with brothers and sisters on Sunday, and by late Monday or early Tuesday, I'm distracted. I'm, I'm inattentive. I'm uh, drawn away by lesser treasures. Um, I, I need you to, by your Spirit, capture my heart and my mind again and again and again. I know that as I open up the word and I, and I, I speak words, life change isn't going to happen unless you do something by your spirit in the minds and hearts of those who are reading and listening and thinking about the words of your son. So I'm desperate. Um, I, I do not want the morning to be we met together. I want the morning to be we met with you. We, we want to experience and taste and feel your presence in our lives. I can't make that happen, but you intend to. You intend to. So would you please move by the Spirit who inspired these words in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, that we might 
hear well, listen well, and respond well to what Jesus said and what Luke records for us for our good and ultimately for his glory, I pray. Amen. Okay, we're going to start. Luke chapter 6. I'm going to go back just a little bit to chapter 6, verse 17. Jesus has appointed the 12. And having left that little meeting where he appoints the 12, look at what Luke tells us. Luke chapter 6, verse 17. And he came down with them, with the 12, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. So after choosing the 12, Jesus now encounters a big crowd. And the crowd includes disciples, and that's not just the 12, that's others who have become more intentional in following him, and a large group of people who are there because we're really just impressed with him and we're not sure what's going to happen. Maybe someone's going to get healed. But it does say all of them are there to hear him. He's speaking and they're listening to him. So they're there to hear him. And then look, chapter 6, verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So as he's looking at this large group, kind of a mixed multitude, some who are there for the show, some of them who are there because they have needs that they hope he will meet. But he looks at that large crowd and then looks specifically, giving his attention to his disciples, not the 12 only, but those who have pursued him, looking to be followers. And he speaks to them. He lifts up his eyes to his disciples and says to them, we've learned You've heard Bradley unpack it as he talks about those who are blessed and those upon whom their woes come. This is not, this is not how to get saved. That's not what this message is about. That's not what Jesus was talking about. He is describing the more enviable and the less enviable kind of life. The, the blessed is, this is an enviable place. The woes, this is a less enviable place. But Neither of those descriptions are proscriptive, meaning as he's describing a more enviable and a less enviable kind of life, he's not saying you're in and you're out. You do these things and you're in and you do these things you're not. Obviously, they, he can't be saying these are things that you do because look at what he says. He says things like this. Blessed are you, verse 23, who are hungry now. Excuse me, don't, 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now for you shall be satisfied. He's not saying go on a th- three-week fast so that, in fact, you can participate in kingdom life. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying that if you are experiencing need, that's an enviable place to be because there's a good entrance into kingdom life there. When he says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation, he's not saying, if you got stuff, you're out. That's not what he's saying. It's not a matter of whether you're in or whether you're out, but there's an enviable and a less enviable way to start. But he is just going to describe what kingdom life is like. And he starts by talking to the disciples and saying, don't underappreciate where you are. Don't overappreciate where you are. There's an enviable and an unenviable. But there is this kingdom life that I'm inviting you into. He's talking about that. Enviable and less enviable starting points, in a sense, for the kind of life that he's offering. Many of these descriptions that he offers in verses 20 through 26 are things outside of your control. When he says, um, blessed are you, verse 22, when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account, he doesn't, he's not telling you, make sure that you be as obnoxious as you possibly can so that people despise you and hate you so that you can enter into the kingdom. That's not what he's calling them to. So Bradley unpacked that for us. This is not primarily a call of things to do, but he is describing 
the kind of life. And then notice in verse 27, but I say to you who hear. So he's talking to this huge group. And listen, it's not a bunch of deaf people with just a few who hear. There might be a few deaf people there. He hasn't healed yet. But when he says, I say to you who hear, he's talking to all of them. What does he mean when he says, I say to you who hear? Everyone is there to listen to him. But when he says, I say to you who hear, he means that some who are listening and the words are just going in one ear and out the other. And there are some who are actually hanging on his every word. So when he says, I say to you who hear, i.e. those who are paying attention. Moms and dads, you know what this is like. As you talk to your children. And sometimes you'll say, did you not hear what I said? And the kids will respond, yes, I heard what you said. And, and there's a disconnect there. Wait, wait. You mean it registered on your ears. It didn't get any farther than that, though. And so that's what Jesus is saying when he says, I, I say to you who hear. And then he describes this kind of life. He talks about loving your enemies and doing good to those who hate you. To the one who strikes you on one cheek, turn the other cheek. He describes this idea of if someone demands something from you, you give it to them and you let them have it. And then he says, because if you only love those who love you, you're no different than the sinners. If you only give to those who give to you, you're no different than the pagans. So what's he doing here? He again is not giving primarily a set of instructions to follow, but he is describing two kinds of life. He's describing the life of those who are children of God. And he's describing the life of, and he uses the word sinners. There's two different kinds of life there that he's describing. This is not instructions as to how to get into that life. This is a description of the two different kinds of life. Like the opening, this is not simply about doing things that married couples do, but this is realizing there are these two kinds of life. One flows out of being caught up with kingdom life. In fact, look at how he says it um, in verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. When he says that you are to live this way, you can live this way because the Father is kind and merciful. He's not saying the Father does kind and merciful things in order to become God, right? right? He's saying this is the outflow of his life. He is this kind of Father. This is the way he is. And so when he says, you do these things, well, the ones who do those things are those who are children of that Father. So it is, in fact, Shall we say diagnostic, descriptive, not proscriptive? He's not saying, do these things so that. He's saying, live this way because of. It's not an in order to get into this life, but he's describing the kind of life that flows from those who are children of the living God. Um, I, that's why I mean by it's diagnostic. Um, back in April, uh, I had pneumonia on top of COVID. And in April, for twice, I was in the hospital for a total of about seven or eight days. And when I was there, they did all kinds of tests. They checked my oxygen levels. They took blood work. They did a CAT scan. They did an M, I mean, a, a chest X-ray. Um, they checked my blood pressure. All of that, to be, when they took blood and they found a white blood count that was high, that wasn't... Brian, you need to do something about that. That was diagnostic. That was, oh, the white blood count means there's an infection, right? It wasn't, they didn't do the test to make me different. They did the test to assess whether I was, in fact, sick or not. Do you understand? 
So when Jesus is describing these two kinds of life here, this is not primarily an instruction set for do this or don't do that. This is diagnostic. Are, are you experiencing father kind of life or are you not? He's describing it that way. He talks about the father. The father being kind and merciful is not in order for him to become the father. It's because that's the kind of life he has. Children of God live this way. Sinners don't. Those who don't know him don't live this way. There are the kinds of things that flow out of having been caught up with God's kind of life. That's what he's describing. Now, let's look. In chapter 6, verse 39, he then says this parable. And I want you to understand that there's a flow of thought here as Jesus has been talking. He isn't changing horses in midstream. Some, sadly, some commentators think this is just a random collection of Jesus' sayings that Luke had room in his manuscript and he just pulled a bunch of stuff together. I don't think either that's what Luke intended nor what Jesus would do. So let's look in chapter 6, verse 39. It says, and Jesus told them, those who have ears to hear, he told them this parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? That seems to be pretty obvious what the point is. If you're following someone who doesn't see clearly, not going to go well for you. If you're following a blind man, it's not going to go well for you. You'll end up in the wrong place. And then he doesn't stop there. He offers this next thought, verse 40. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. If, in fact, you're following a blind man, someone who doesn't know the way, and that's where you're going, you're going to end up in a bad place. But if, in fact, you're following a teacher who knows where they're going, you know what's going to happen? You'll end up sharing in that teacher's life. That's what he's talking about. He's been teaching. He's talking to those who are hearing him. What's the idea? Who are you following? If you're following a blind guy, it's not going to go well for you. If you're following me, if I'm your teacher, then in fact you'll begin to experience life with me. You'll share in my kind of life. And then look at what he says in verse 41. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now, now some Bible teachers think that that's just a standalone kind of thing. We just pull that out of its context and hang it up over there. I don't think that's the case. Jesus has been talking about living into this kind of life. He's describing this kind of life, and he says if you're, if you're following somebody who isn't seeing well, then you're going to end up in a ditch, but if you have a good teacher, you're going to be able to share in their life. And then he says this, why do you see that? Now, when he says, why do you see the speck in your brother's eye and not recognize the log in your own eye, how does that fit? I think he's talking to this large group of people, and as they're listening to him, some of them tend to go like this. Hey, he's talking to you. Hey, don't, don't you know, that, that's for you. Yeah, that's for you. No, 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 no. That's for you, right? And, he, and Jesus is saying, hey, don't ignore what I'm saying as if it only is for them, right? If for you to have the log in your own eye and think that, oh, that, that's, that's for you. You're not, you're not prizing Jesus' words. You're not paying enough attention to his words. I think Jesus' point is, no, no. You need, you who hear me, you need to be attentive to what it is that I'm saying. This is not just for somebody else. Why is that the case? Look at what he says in verse 43. For no good tree, this is explanatory. When he says for, to explain what he's been saying, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, 
nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. He's basically saying it's really clear that good trees produce good fruit. Everyone would go, duh, yes, bad trees produce bad fruit. Duh, and hence the good person out of the good soul produces good things. He is not explaining how to be the good person. He's simply saying this is the case. Those who belong to the Father, those who share in his life, it's going to flow this way because out of the abundance of the heart comes what we see. Out of the, I had a really practical experience of this. Um, I have a, had, until yesterday, I had a really beautiful maple tree in my front yard that my wife and I planted a decade ago. And last season, it started to look a little bad right up at the top. And so we brought an arbalist in. And, and what can we do to, to help this tree? Nothing. What do you mean nothing? We planted this tree. It's a beautiful tree. It's almost two stories high. No, it's got to come down. Why? It's a bad tree. I didn't know why it was a bad tree. It had the problem that's called a girdling root. A root had grown around the base of the tree and was basically choking the life out. What can we do to fix that? Nothing. Nothing. Yeah, it's a bad tree. We've got to take it down. You, Jesus says bad trees produce bad results. Good trees produce good results. Good people with good souls. Good stuff flows from them. Bad people, bad souls, bad stuff flows from them. He is not talking about how to be a good tree. He's simply saying it's really clear that what fills the heart will flow in life. It's not about entering into this life. He's simply describing this life. But then... Then we get to the verses we need to focus on today. Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Is, is this about behavior modification? Now, up to this point, he's not been talking about do this thing, and now he's focusing on the behavior, right? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. Is he saying do good things and you'll get in? Do good stuff and you'll be good? No, I don't think so because he's just said good trees produce good fruit. Bad trees produce bad fruit. He doesn't say bad trees should try to paste good fruit onto their branches so that they will be mistaken for good trees. That's not what he's saying. So what does he mean when he says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I tell you? I don't think Jesus' point is behavior modification. Do cross the T's and dot the I's so that you can enter life. In fact, much of what Jesus has said in Luke chapter 6 is not stuff you can do. It's just reality. It's stuff that you embrace, stuff that you affirm, stuff that you believe, but stuff that you don't do. You can't, you're not supposed to make people hate you so that you can be in the kingdom, right? It's, that's not what you're supposed to do. So what does this mean? This word there for do um, isn't merely a cross the T and dot the I's kind of thing. It has to do with how you live, not simply the things you do. Here, here's why I see that. Turn just a page back to Luke chapter 5, verse 29. Jesus calls this tax collector named Levi, Matthew, and in chapter 5, verse 29, here's what we read. And Levi made for Jesus a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. Now, ESV renders, and Levi made. It's literally the word do. Levi dude a great feast for Jesus. But that doesn't mean that Levi served all the food. It doesn't mean that Levi cooked all the food. It doesn't mean that Levi set the tables up. It means that Levi lived a feast kind of moment with Jesus. Tracking with me? 
So when Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things I say? He's not simply saying cross the T's, dot the I's, make sure that you follow all the rules. He's saying, why don't you live into the things I'm talking about? If, in fact, you see me as master, why do you not live into everything that I'm talking with you about? Um, Look in chapter 6 also. Um, Verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name of evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did, there's the same word, to the prophets. Now, it doesn't mean that every prophet was, in fact, hated and excluded and reviled and spurned. It doesn't mean those kinds of things happened. Why? Well, because people hated the prophets. It isn't simply about crossing the T's and dotted the I's. There's a kind of life that the people were living who hated the prophets. Jesus goes, if you call me master, then live into the things that I talk about. That is, embrace the things that I talk about. Attend to the things that I say. If I'm your master, then heed, attend to my words. Look at what he says in verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them. You've got to be careful about how you read that word does. It doesn't simply mean cross the T's and dot the I's. The fact is, you could do the right things and not have any heart in it. And that is of no benefit. So when Jesus says, he who hears my words and does them, the the word there, um, New American Standard renders this and acts on them. There are some words that you do carry out in behavioral ways. But there are some words of Jesus that you can't do anything about. You just need to embrace. You need to live in. You need to welcome. You need to affirm. You need to believe. There's nothing you can do about it other than attend to it. Be attentive to it. So when Jesus says here, for um, everyone who comes to me and hears my words and attends to them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. I don't think Jesus' point is, and they got all the bricks in the right place. They got the big thing right. The details? What kind of paneling did they use in the house? That doesn't matter. What paint, what paint did they use? Was it a flat roof? Or, it does, that doesn't matter. What mattered is they got the big thing right. The details were not nearly as important as getting the foundation right. So he then goes on to say, but the one who hears and does not attend to my words is like the man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. It doesn't matter how the house was built if the foundation was wrong. In fact, it doesn't matter how the house is built, if the foundation is right. What's important is the foundation. And what is the foundation? Jesus is explaining the foundation is attending to my words. You need to hold on to everything I say as if they are the most important words that you will ever hear. You you need to respond to what I say as if my words are picturing for you the kind of life that you long for. But you know what some of the crowd... They heard his words, and they perhaps dismissed them. They're nice words of a rather enigmatic teacher who doesn't really know how life happens, and his view of life just doesn't work in the world in which we live. And that result, that response will result in ruin. Jesus is not directly explaining how to enter into this life. 
but he is describing two kinds of life. The kind of life he is inviting us into. He's not, he's not being obtuse here by not telling us how to get into this life, but he is presenting this picture. There's two kinds of life, a picture of an entirely different kind of life anchored in what he says and what he values and his perspective. And if, in fact, that's what thrills your heart, you're likely a good tree. So let me ask you, what permeates your life? Do Jesus' words, his view of life, his call to life, does that, is that what shapes your thinking? Has his way of life become so attractive to you that it is the kind of life you want? Then you may well be a good tree. You may well be a child. You are building on a good foundation. Now, I'm, I'm not a fan of sports analogies. I don't use them often, but one came to mind that I think is helpful. I can tell if you are a Clemson or Gamecocks fan because of what you attend to. Not simply what you go to as an event, but what you attend to. What statistics you cite, uh, which players you pay attention to, what you talk about, how you review the past. It's not there's stuff that you do, but it's what flows out of your life. What you attend to tells me what you're a fan of. It's about diagnostics. Do kingdom things flow from you? Are you living consistent with Jesus' words and values and perspective? I, I think about it this way. Um, you, you'll go to the airport, um, and some, some family member has been away for a long time. And they're back, maybe from a mission trip. Um, they come back, they haven't been home for a week or a month And family members are waiting there to see them come through the gate. And they come through the gate. And how do the family members respond? All kinds of ways. But you can tell whether they were glad to see the person return or not, right? But it's not everybody does the same thing. It's not everybody does the same thing. But you can see some people going. (laughs) It's not that they can't do that, but. But then there are others who run and throw their arms around and holler and shout and. I was talking with a friend last week about this very idea. And he said it came really home to him when he was at the airport waiting for his wife to come back from a business trip that she'd been gone for a couple of weeks. And he had his like eight-year-old son with him. And when mom was coming, the eight-year-old son wanted to just run up and, and grab mom and celebrate mom coming. And dad was holding him back, right? No, no, don't, don't. And the little, boy look, the little boy looked up at his dad and said, get off me, that's my mom. And <laughs> could you tell what captured that little boy's heart? Absolutely. That's what he was attentive to. That, is that the only way you could respond? No. But if you get the big thing right, the details will take care of themselves. You don't have to run screaming through the airport, but you might. You don't have to bring a sign, but you might. Whatever would be the right expression of the big idea, I think that's really important. Do kingdom things flow from you? Are you living consistent with Jesus' words and values and perspective? That would be the diagnostic tool as to whether you're a good tree or a bad tree, whether you're a child of God or you're not. Now, in a group like this, I don't know all of you, even though I've been here often. Some of you might not, in fact yet be children of God. And you're just puzzled about this. You might be here this morning because 
someone has invited you and you're kind of intrigued with Jesus and you're not sure what to do with him. So you're here kind of to listen. And you know what? That's really okay because there was a large group of people that Jesus was speaking to and some of them were just there to, because they were intrigued. They weren't yet followers. And that's okay if you're there to, to be puzzled about Jesus. So you're kind of impressed with him, not sure what to do with him. That's okay. The, Jesus is not... Troubled by that? We're not troubled by that. But if you're there and you're hearing what Jesus is saying here and you go, well, I, I don't know if I'm a good tree or not. How do I become a good tree? I don't know if I'm a child of God. How do I become a child of God? This text doesn't explain that. So, so I can't take you there from this text because Jesus is simply talking about these two kinds of life. But that he doesn't explain how to get there. But if, in fact, your heart is being stirred by what Jesus said, then before you leave this morning, would you come and talk to Bradley or to Mary or to myself? Come and talk to somebody about, so what would it be like to become a good tree? What would it be like to enter into this life? And we'll be glad to walk you through other passages in the scripture that will take you there. But many of you I know, many of you I know are in fact followers. You're hearers. You're the ones that Jesus is speaking to when he says, you who are hearing me, being his follower includes embracing everything that he says in terms of how to view life, his perspective, his values. It's not always specific instructions to follow. It's getting the big thing right. He matters most of all. His view matters most of all. His perspective values is more valuable than anybody else's perspective. Getting that right, the details will be worked out. And, and, if we don't get the big picture right, you could be doing all the details right and miss it entirely. So I, I've been trying to think through this. Um, some years ago, I was working for a Christian ministry, and uh, um, I was working for the man who is the lead teacher in the ministry, helping him develop his curriculum, helping prepare the curriculum, and he wanted to, to do a series on leadership, teach a, a course on leadership. And uh, as I was working with him on it, I had a particular perspective on leadership, and I thought that leadership is actually an expression of servanthood. I think that's what Jesus says. I was picking that up from him. And as we were talking about it, and he was preparing his outlines for what he was going to teach, he said, and I quote, servant leadership just doesn't work. And I thought, wow, somebody's leading you here, and I think it's a blind teacher, and you're going to fall into a pit, right? Um, you're not valuing what Jesus has to say about what leadership looks like. I'm not suggesting he was unsaved. I'm simply suggesting he's not living in the reality of Luke chapter 6. Are you attentive if you're calling me master? Do you attend to what I say? He was a bit dismissive of Jesus' words. We can't reduce what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 6 to simply, like I said, crossing the T's and dotting the I's as if it were simply about the set of instructions. I think about... Um, Paul's letter to the Ephesians when he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And I've talked with lots of husbands and they'll go, my wife says that I don't love her. What should I do? I tend not to tell that man anything. <laughs> no, seriously. Because if I tell them, here are the six things that you do, then he does those six things. And a month from now, he comes back and goes, my wife says that I don't love her. Yeah, because you're just going through the motions. You're just doing the thing. That's not what Jesus wants. When he says, love your wives, when Paul writes, he says, love your wives as Christ loved the church, that's a heartfelt, affectionate response to your wife. So when I talk with the husband, I'm not going to give you things to do because the things to do are the details. The big thing is you need a change of affection. You need your heart stirred. So let's pray for that. And then you know what? We won't have to talk about the behavior. 
Because the behavioral flow out of the big thing, you get the big thing right, the details will follow. Um, I, I think about um, children and parents. When it says children honor your parents, that doesn't mean don't argue with them. Because you could not argue with them and still not honor them, still not value them. You gotta get the big thing right. If you get the big thing right, then you won't be arguing with them. But if you get the focus on the details, you may miss the big thing. Tracking with me? So some years ago, a, a sister in the Lord came to see me. Um, she had divorced her husband. She was a Christian. He was a Christian. She just didn't feel like he was the man she thought he should be. And she had actually gone to see a couple of other counselors before she came to see me. And the first time she came into my office, she plopped down in the chair and said, so you're going to tell me I have to go back to my husband. And I thought, I'm not going to tell you that. You already know that. That's just, that's just the details. That, that's not uh, to t- for, you to, for me to tell you that. You're already resistant to that idea. So my first question to her was, so how's your affection for Jesus? And she was like, what do you mean? Well, you know him and you have a relationship with him. How's your heart? How's your affection for Jesus? And so we began to explore that over the next couple of weeks. We just talked about where's her heart? How's her heart for Jesus? What's her affection like? It's maybe the fourth week that she came in, plopped down on the chair in my office and said, you know what? I think Jesus wants me to be reconciled with my husband. So we got the big thing right, and the details fell into place. This is what Jesus is talking about in Luke chapter 6. And if we're not careful, we read it as if it's a selected collection of individual instructions that if we cross the T's and dot the I's, then we're living the life. That is not the case. The fact is Jesus is in the tree replacement business. He's taking what are bad trees and making them into good trees. He is in the heart transplant business. That's, that's an idea that's drawn from the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah and the book of Ezekiel. When the new covenant is talked about, God says things like, I'm going to take out your heart of stone that doesn't love me, and I'm going to put a heart of flesh in that loves me. And if he does that, then what's going to happen to your behavior? Behavior will be right. He, he doesn't say, I'm going to take out the heart of stone that doesn't love me, and I'm going to give you a bunch of rules to follow so that ultimately, if you do a good job on the internship and practice really hard, then you will. No, that's not what it's about. I'm going to take out your heart of stone and put in you a heart of flesh, and the result will be you'll produce good fruit because now you're a good tree. That's what Jesus is all about. This is why when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, you need to be born again. He doesn't say, Nicodemus, you need to try harder to do gooder. Something needs to happen. So I walk away from Luke chapter 6 with some big questions. What is the evidence in my life that I prize Jesus Above all others. Uh, We sang a song this morning where we talked about being lost in his love. Are you? Are you lost in his love? Are you entirely captured by that? Is this your story? Is this your song? Praising your Savior all the day long. We sang, my soul is satisfied in him alone. Is it? That's the invitation. It's diagnostic. Not prescriptive. And we're going to sing one more song before we leave. I want to invite you to worship. But that doesn't mean stand. That doesn't mean raise your hands. That doesn't even mean sing if, if that's not. What it means is be radically impressed with Jesus who is talking with you about this life that you can enjoy. And if you're radically impressed with him and the life he is offering you, then respond however is appropriate. Whatever's stirring in your heart.
It might mean you'll stand. It might mean you'll raise your hand. It might mean you'll sing. It might mean you'll kneel. It, whatever. Respond to Jesus. Because you call him master. Are you attending to what he's saying to you? And if so, give in and respond. Let me pray. All I can ask is that your words would come home to our heart by the Spirit and that we would respond deeply from our souls where you have touched us and where you have moved by your word and by your Spirit. Let the expression that comes, not just this morning, but in day-to-day life, may the expression of our lives display that you are the most important thing to us. Amen. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.